All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson. Pretty new listeners to the Money Wise program. Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 34th year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. Well, as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 211 points, or six-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was down about four points, so we'll call that flat for the week. And the NASDAQ last week was down 134 points, or 1.1%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 1%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 6.9%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 15.5%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've had a new MoneyWise program. For myself, took a little bit of uh, R&R, and I know we ran the Investor Psychology Program last week. Um, But Jeff, I know that you had the numbers from the first quarter that we didn't have a chance to go through last week. So I just wanted to give a quick segue to just talk about the first quarter of 2023 and how things shaped up. So the Dow for the the first quarter of 2023 was up less than four-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 was up a little over 7%, and the NASDAQ was up just shy of 17%. Uh, for the for the for the first quarter, I didn't look up any statistics on when was the last time the Nasdaq or was up that much in the <clears throat> in the first quarter, but it, I'm sure it it's been it's been some time. But what was the catalyst? Well, for, uh, I mean, for, for the Nasdaq to be up that much in the first quarter, other than the fact that it was what down thirty some odd percent in the previous year, that was going to be my first point. <laughs> is that, that it was yes. the one that was absolutely bludgeoned. So reflex reality, a re- uh, reflex, yeah. reflex rally. Yeah, I mean, it could be a reflex rally. Obviously, I know there's a few tech names that have really been driving from the S&P 500 valuation standpoint is definitely making the S&P 500 from a valuation viewpoint look higher than it actually is. And I know this is a conversation we've had in the office that if you strip out you know, five to 10 of the biggest uh, market cap tech names in the S&P 500 and then look at the price earnings multiple, it 
just below the 10-year average. So it's showing the rest of the S&P 500 is definitely more fairly priced. But there is definitely some tech names, NVIDIA being one of them, a stock that we've owned and owned for quite a long period of time. We've just had an, a meteoric rise so far this year, and a lot of it is on the back of this AI, artificial intelligence, and they're really kind of becoming the leading chip manufacturer in artificial intelligence. And so there's some other tech companies that have gotten drug up along with it, Microsoft, another stock that we own in the portfolio as well. Um, So there's definitely been some tech names that have just been ripping it this year, but just looking at the first quarter's number, first quarter of the NASDAQ, I mean, we've talked about this on past shows all throughout this past quarter. Annualize that number, do we think that the NASDAQ is going to be up 45, 47, 50% this year? I don't think so. I know I was the most optimistic and most bullish for the market so far at the beginning of this year for 2023, but I don't think that was part of my predictions, the NASDAQ being up 50%. Yeah, I don't think anybody would have handicapped the, the NASDAQ being up 17% for the first quarter. I mean, it's amazing how quickly it rotated from value to large cap growth. I will say one positive with some of these mega cap uh, tech names is now they're mining the store, so to speak, and running it like a real business where they actually have this thing called reduction in force and laying people off. You know, and you mean cost cutting, Joe. Yeah, your, I mean, cost like the cutting, adults are okay. finally are, are in the room and they're actually, uh, you know, looking at their balance sheets and figuring out how are they going to uh, get more margin. And they cut employees. So well, well, belt, belt tightening is never is is never a bad thing, particularly with the. I don't want to say impending recession, but I know all three of us have agreed and talked on this program for months and months that we anticipate that we're going to see some type of recession most likely this year. The other thing that's, I think, been driving uh, the NASDAQ, which is dominated by large cap tech growth, growth, growth stocks, is interest rates coming down. Um, the, you know, the 10-year treasury for the first three months of the year uh, was down about 40 basis points in terms of yield. And if you look at other uh, instruments, that, you know, one time a two-year Treasury was yielding right around five percent, and at one time in the in the first quarter, I think we were near three and a half percent on a on a two year Treasury yield. That's a tremendous drop in yield. Now all this is laid at the feet of the, of the banking. Well, what happened in the banking? Uh, the, those two banks that failed, and I think there was this big there was this big rush of investors into the quote unquote you know safety trade. Uh, but it, interestingly enough, it didn't necessarily also manifest itself in lower stock prices. No. Now, I didn't bring the statistics, and maybe we can look this up during as we continue on the show this weekend show, is how much of the performance, especially the S&P and the NASDAQ, was driven by those large cap tech names. Because I, I, I thought I heard, and I'm – and please don't hate me if I get this wrong, uh, that I heard some pundits say that 90% of the S&P 500's gain in the first quarter was due to basically the 10 largest uh, tech stocks in the NASDAQ. And that was what was driving uh, performance of the S&P. I don't know if that's correct or not, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say, it makes a lot of sense. It absolutely heard, makes sense when you see the performance of just the NASDAQ in the first quarter of 23. Well, the weighting of the S&P, I think 14% of it 
or two stocks, Softy, Microsoft, and another stock, and I can't remember what the other one was. Kyle, you may know, or Jeff. I heard Apple. that Friday. Maybe well, Apple. Well, it'd be Apple. Yeah. Be Apple. It'd so. be Apple. And so, you know, the, the the bottom line is, is is you know, obviously the Dow has been the lagger so far in 2023, but it was the best performing index in a, you know, in a negative year for 2022. So, you know, obviously it's very slow getting out of the blocks, the big mega cap blue chip, but it's also just 30 individual stocks for the Dow. But the NASDAQ have absolutely been ripping the cover off the ball so far for 2023. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcast or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street this past week. Obviously, a holiday-shortened week with Good Friday, uh, having the markets closed, and of course, being that we're recording this show on Thursday, we can't uh, speak on what the employment number is going to be that is actually coming out on Good Friday, which I'm really surprised that the government decided to go ahead and release that number on a market holiday. But, you know, baby their, Jesus is not happy with them. Yeah, I was I was going to I was going <laughs> to say in their quote unquote infinite wisdom why they would put that Having number out. We'll we'll see how the market's going to respond to it on Monday. But since it has been a couple of weeks since we've had a new MoneyWise program, there's been quite a bit of information that has come out uh, over the last couple of weeks that I wanted to recap. And and really the, the, the gist of the conversation is just the continued showing of all the work the Federal Reserve has been doing as far as monetary policy adjustments and increasing interest rates going back to March of 2022 is just continuing to show its effect and that it's taking hold of the economy as a whole. And a couple of weeks ago, the core PCE, uh, which back in the day used to be the uh, the statistic that the Federal Reserve used in making monetary policy decisions came out, and it showed a one-year, year-over-year decline of over 15%, and also the core PCE came out to be at the lowest level going back all the way to October of 2021. So obviously when this information came out two weeks ago, the market responded very favorably to that because two weeks ago we had a very nice run-up to the end of the first quarter. But So it showed, for the moment, a downward trend. It's still, it's still higher than the Federal Reserve uh, wants, and it added fuel to the end of the quarter, and we ended the quarter on a high note, which is, seems here the last few quarters. I'm thinking of the end of the third quarter uh, comes – comes to my mind that they also they seem to be ending on a low note but the first quarter ended on a high note some of those statistics contributed to that um well there were some fed speakers this week though 
a mixed bag of comments. Uh, the market really didn't seem to react to to either one of them. I think one of them was we got to go got to go higher than five percent, um, and I forget which Fed governor that was. Um, but the markets really had no reaction to it. Uh, we st- we got to go through the entire month of April before we're going to get anything from the Fed because the Fed doesn't meet again until like the first week of of May, and by by then. We'll have had uh, mostly all the heavy hitters in terms of earnings will have reported. So I think right now the markets are, are kind of just in this holding pattern uh, uh, for, for earnings. Now, yeah, next week we're going to get a CPI number. Um, and as you mentioned, Kyle, we're going to get this employment number, though it looks like uh, based on some of the other employment numbers that have come out, uh, prior to the number on Friday, which was jolts, was lower than expected. Below um, 10 million just past week, just, so, just reported. Yeah, so it's been a while since that number's been below 10 million. Also, unemployment claims have been have right. been increasing. Also, so the, the the bottom line is is that as we've talked on past shows, the claws of all the monetary policy wrangling and interest rate increases are starting to sink deeper and deeper into the economy, and it's showing up in the data. Now, is is this data that's to come that may be, can, may be interpreted as negative, is the market going to interpret that as negative? Is it is it bad news? Is good news for the market, or is it? Are we back in the bad news is bad news camp? Well, after being up seven percent for the S and P five hundred in the first quarter, uh, which would be twenty eight percent annualized, which none of us believe that's going to happen this year, I would tend to think that bad news isn't necessarily going to be good news for stocks, given the run that we've had here of late. The, the recession word, it continues to get thrown around. You know, we we all have our own views on when a recession may begin, how deep it may be. Um, I look at it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, as dad, dad and I are kind of students of history, and I was doing a little research here between the breaks, and I was, I was curious to see how much earnings – on average, decline when there's a recession. And I just happened to stumble upon an article that went back to the 1950s that showed uh, how much price-to-earnings ratios compressed. That's what they what they call it in the Wall Street speak, in the average recession. And there have been 10 of them, including COVID. COVID was, was part of this, which is really only a – handful of months recession. It was two months, February to April of 2020. The average PE compression in the last 10 recessions has been 26%. Now, here's a, an interesting thing about that statistic. If you look, if you stopped in time to last September when we hit that low in the S&P 500, pardon me, October, I always say September. <laughs> October got you got September on your but, mind, October 30th. But this particular statistic just stops at September sure. the 30th, okay? So they, okay. they said this, this, this particular article talked about from the market highs, which were basically the end of 2021, the first day of 2022. That was the market high, the all-time high. 
to September the 30th of last year, which was in and around this low that we've been talking about now here for months. The price-to-earnings ratio decline was about 30% in those nine months. So we got the compression without the recession. And so we got the compression – Without the recession, I like that. We need to you put like a T-shirt. That. That's a new. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that go, to our, go to our website and you can get the shirt. <laughs> but that, that was going to be my question, Jeff. Though with you, transitory you and, and the, the and the value of the S and P five hundred declined twenty five, little over twenty five percent. Now, what's happened since then? Well, the S and P five hundred is up. Now, I don't have it right at my fingertips. How much it's up? We're up. Uh, I would say we're probably up more than 10% since the end of September of last year. I know we're up at least seven in this last quarter. So maybe it's closer to 15. So now the PE ratio is back to 22. I'm just rounding it off. So that compression that we had last year, which didn't lead to a recession. Well, now we've, we've, We've ratcheted back up again, and PEs are here. Here we're back at you know 22 PE. Now, what what's the other thing that's changed since last September? How many times has Fed raised interest <laughs> rates since last September? And where uh, we're you know they don't count anymore. Where were interest rates at the beginning of 2022? I mean, we we're we were at zero, right? So how does that figure into this computation, Yako? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, we did have a technical recession first and second quarter of 2022, but that was, I mean, it led right into my my question is that we got the compression without the true, I mean, yes, it's a technical recession from every macroeconomic sense. It didn't feel like it at the time in the first and second quarter. I mean, folks invested in the market. Yeah, it definitely hurt as far as the, the value of their portfolio. But I always go back to still the same amount of cash that's sitting out there in the money supply. There's still a lot of jobs that are available, even though the the JOLTS report came in with less than t- – it was 9.9 million available jobs. We're still missing millions of people, even if every job was filled. filled we're still missing a couple million people that we need to fill all of those vacant job openings. And so, and so, yes, we've got the compression of the multiple. And again, I think this is on a stock by stock basis. This is more of a stock picker's market, I would say, than anything else, because there are definitely a lot of still great values out there with high quality, fundamentally sound companies that have seen even more significant multiple compressions. Well, we may have got a compression up to that moment in time, but it's now reinflated again. But what are the stocks? But see, that's the thing is we got to extrapolate well, I, I, which are the stocks yeah. that are really driving that. But what you, what you can because it's a handful of them. Okay, but, but what you could infer from this is additional support to say that that October number may be the low for this cycle, and if we do get into a recession, that and we do re re you know compress. Uh, earnings and go back down to those PE ratios like we had in la- you know, October of last year, you could, as we get more and more time goes by, that October low is beginning to, to look more like a low for this cycle to me. 
Yeah. But and, right and now, we're just stuck in this trading range. Yeah. And the low is that low that was in October. I mean, and the hot. Yeah, we'll stop right here. Yeah, we got yeah, break. Let's take a commercial break. We'll pick this up on the other side. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So we're continuing our conversation uh, of just recapping the last couple of weeks on Wall Street. And I know we were getting a little deep in the weeds, technical weeds, but, you know, this is the important conversations. You know, the Money Wise program has always been about pulling the curtain back to hear what actual managers of money talk about in our portfolio strategy meetings and the debates that we have. And so we like to bring these to the open air for all of our listeners to, to, to hear, to provide that transparency and to pull that curtain back. Because unlike a lot of other radio shows that are just nothing but a bunch of financial salespeople selling a bunch of financial products, primarily insurance and annuities, which we despise in any way, shape, or form, at least, you know, in the Money Wise program, you're listening to three actual money managers that are fiduciaries with discretionary control. So with that, talking about multiple compression, talking about recession, we've seen the multiple compression last year throughout the market. And right before we went to break, I was making a comment that there's a lot of fundamentally sound companies that great long-term values that have had their multiples compressed And now that we're going to be moving into the first quarter earnings, continuing to follow our strategy as far as our individual stock buying that we have talked about on this program, waiting to hear what the earnings are, hearing the Ford guidance. And as we've talked on this program, trying to handicap the unhandicappable right now, because with some of the economic data that has come out, it kind of leads me to believe that we could see the Fed pause in May. They'll still leave on the table the possibility of an additional interest rate increase in the future, but the data that I've been reading and hearing and seeing is that those claws are sinking deeper, and the economy is slowing down. The employment picture is slowing down. We'll know more uh, when the report comes out on Good Friday, which we'll talk about on next week's program, but that this, and then you compound that, or then you add to that the banking situation and the fact that they're most likely going to be slowing down giving loans, and it's going to be giving consumers pause of making big, large purchases with being a little bit on shaky ground concerning the economy, I think that this would definitely give the the Fed cover to pause in May. I mean, what are y'all's thoughts? Well, last week, the multiple analysts were talking about the, the, the majority of the opinion was they're looking at a pause. Now I think we could we could talk about a Fed pivot and throw that out the window through the end of 2023. So pivot, I don't think meaning, that's going to happen. We, meaning cutting rates. Meaning, right? meaning cutting rates. I don't think that's going to happen. There's still 
part of the market is baking in, and we talked about the first quarter of the year. You know, there, there's probably a school of thought that the that the Fed might pivot, and I don't want to continue to say too much. I'm not in that school. I, my take, and I wanted to talk about the last segment. I think Kyle, you hit the nail on the head. I think we're going to be in this trading range for a while. That's what I think. We're going to jog around here until we have a little more clarity. I mean, if we have a recession, how steep is it going to be towards the second half of the year? If that happens, you know, and, and but that's my that's my take. I mean, we've been in this range for a while. So anyway, I don't think I don't think the market is 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 afraid of afraid the Federal Reserve is gonna is gonna raise interest rates another hundred basis points. Yeah, or hundred. I, I don't think the market's afraid. I don't think the market believes that's going to happen. I believe that 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 the Fed is is not what's really necessarily going to be driving the market um, from here on out. Because I just don't think there's there's that that many more interest rate increases, if any, that are going to occur between now and the end of the year. Because we're starting to see, as you said, Kyle, the teeth, um, all of these interest rate Claws increases are, 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 starting, are starting to slow the economy, whether it be leading economic indicators, whether it be employment, uh, whether it be retail sales, yeah. you know, uh, whatever claims, it is, construction yeah. spending, industrial production, you know, whatever the statistic you want to look at, it's starting to have an effect. And, and then you tack on banking, this banking well, situation well, so, on top of that. So I think the the driving factor is, is we need to justify with the economy as it is today and the outlook for the economy in the next three, six, nine months, can you justify a 22 PE given the outlook economically for the remainder of the year? That's, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's my question. Can you, can you justify, because we've basically gone from a 17 PE we just talked about last September when the markets had that that low in October, to now almost twenty two, and that all what's happened since then have, have earnings gone up that much? No, have well, that's interest what rates I was gone say. up a bunch? Yes. Yeah. Have has economic conditions gotten worse since then? I would say yes. So to me, uh, it's got to be proven would, in the E. I, it's got to be proven. Yeah, we got we got to hear some me, and I, I don't I don't see companies coming out in this environment and raising their estimates for the rest of this year. Do you, do you expect any CEOs would come out and do that in this environment? I would, I have, one, they, I would have to I say think, no. I think ones that want to juice their stock price, or, or the ones that have been running a tight ship the whole time. You know, that's the key. The ones that have been fiscally sound have been running a very tight ship, have a very strong balance sheet, have great cash flow, and who've just been lumped in with the other companies that have been doing the wrong thing that have whether got caught up into exchange-traded funds that all got taken out back and beaten up, and there's still some gems in there. And that's why I was saying in the last segment that this is really becoming more of a stock picker's market instead of just a market of stocks. Well, it's, it's a stock picker's market in and around here because of that exact point. Who's got the tightest balance sheet? Who has the best margins? Who has the best cash flow? Who's been running the tightest ship? Yeah, Joe. Our earnings were down first quarter of the year. 
Yeah, they but were down almost 5%. They're down almost 5%. But how many stocks actually beat their estimates for the quarter? And the peak, I know Kyle has that, that number. It, it, it was north of it was it was below seventy percent, but it was definitely north of sixty five percent. So there there's definitely it slowed down, yes, but well, we we're not we're not to the point where we're seeing more than fifty percent of the S and P five hundred not beating their earnings per share you know estimates their EPS. So we're not at that point, but yes, earnings have definitely slowed. But like Jeff said. All of this to justify, as Jeff was talking about, the price earning multiple, in order to justify it, it has to be justified in the E. And the earnings is where it has to be justified. But this is the reason why we've been talking this entire year on the Money Wise program, why all investors, all the home gamers, all the folks out there that are investors, you have to be patient. You have to be patient. You have to stay nimble. You have to have powder dry and your buy list ready Because with all market storms, with all storms of all time, they do pass. It's just the only $64,000 question is what is the length of time it's going to take for them to pass. But, Jeff, I think your assessment of the Fed is starting to take a back seat. They're starting to take a back seat as far as driving the market. Because I agree, we could definitely see a pause in May and then leave the door open for additional rate increases if they see inflation start to creep back up. But I think we would probably all agree the Fed doesn't want to get caught in a situation like Volcker did where they cut rates and then have to go right back a few months later, a few meetings later, and and, and increase them back. They don't want to make that right. They would rather just hold – they would rather circle the field because they are already have been wiping pie off their face over the whole transitory inflation call that they got totally wrong. So the last thing they want to do is get kicked in the head twice. Transitory inflation, transitory recession, that will be something you see for the second half of this year or a soft landing because we are getting in a political climate next year. And if we but, could just keep Janet Yellen quiet, <laughs> just geez. silent. Yeah, it's been silent. Could, I mean, she, 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 oh, mean, she learned two she weeks got, ago she got that words memo. have consequences. Yeah, well, after that, and after, night. We, after we put out our, our little <laughs> missive, I, I don't know, a couple of shows ago, <laughs> she's she's been very, very quiet. So she must have got the memo we sent her. I, I, I'll take full credit. Pipe yeah. down, Janet. Pipe down. Yeah, she's got she's to pipe down. So... You know, you know, I, I do right before we go to commercial break, and not to, again, continue, I'm trying to pull us out of the weeds, the technical weeds a little bit, but I, I did read a very interesting article this past week, um, and, and, and it's almost, it almost seemed like a letter to the editor from the banking industry uh, of their complaints of the access that money market funds and mutual funds and exchange-traded funds have access to what's called the reverse overnight repo window of the Federal Reserve that the banks do not have access to. And it was basic. I almost read it as a complaint letter saying, hey, the reason why deposits have been leaving our banks is because on average, banks are paying six-tenths of 1% on idle cash held on deposit at these banks, whereas the reverse overnight repo market is paying north of four and a half percent, but these banks don't have access to it. And so it's a very, it was kind of like, this is the reasons why we've had so, so many deposits leave and flooding into money market accounts, why it's been flooding into very short duration um, fixed income instruments and mutual funds and exchange traded funds, because these 
these types of investments have access to this reverse repo where the banks do not. So I got to pause right there, take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162 if you like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, if you were with us through the break, um, just right at the very tail end of that last segment was talking about that article I read from MarketWatch. Um, and, 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 and again... You know, it was, I guess, like I was saying in the last segment, a complaint. It almost seemed like a complaint letter from the banking industry um, that we don't have access to this special facility at the Fed to be able to get over four and a half percent, you know, rates of return for all the money that we have on deposit. And so our depositors have been leaving the bank and why deposits have been flowing out and going into money markets and shorter uh, fixed income instruments because these money markets, these mutual funds and exchange traded funds do have access to the special Fed window that banks do not. Well, um, pardon me if I'm not crying too hard for the banks here, but aren't they the same folks that are charging 20, 22, 25% on credit cards? Yes. Maybe, we, maybe, yeah, should, maybe, the, maybe there should be complaint Aww. letters written to the banks about charging 20 plus percent on credit cards. Well, but I mean, sure there's zero well, percent introduction. What's happening, what's happening is what always happens. Banks are slow to raise deposit rates and very fast to raise loan rates when interest rates rise. I was at Wells Fargo Bank this morning and I saw on the big board behind the teller, the tellers that, uh, they were promoting a, a savings account, you know, 3.3% uh, yield, but you had to put $100,000 into the savings account to get that get that rate. Well, you know, I don't know how many people have $100,000 put into a savings account to get 3.3%, but you drive by all the credit unions, any bank that has a sign out on their, on their, out in front of the bank where they could put up their current deposit rates. And I've seen, you know, several of them, the high threes or the, or the, or the low fours. And so the banks are, are, are raising their deposit rates in order to keep that money in house. You know, I think there's been a, a, a shot across the bow. Now, can the average investor do better in a money market fund? Yeah. The average investor can do can do better in money market fund, and that's why we've seen uh, so much money you know shift from the banks to you know money market funds. That that has slowed because we haven't had any bank failures in the last few weeks. If we have another bank failure in the weeks or months to come, you know there'll be there'll be some more money that shifts around. I'm still trying to figure out why in the world. Can we go from a five percent treasury yield to on, on a two-year treasury yield down to what three and a half percent now, something like that? Yep. 
How does you know how does that happen in in less than a month? That's got to be some hot money. It there has to be some hot money. So it has to be some hot. It has to be a a trade, not a trend, because we're still getting you know four point seven percent in in the position position traded money market fund that that we invest in. It'll probably go a little bit higher here in the next few weeks. Probably topping out about four and three quarters percent. You know, why would I want to tie up money in a two-year treasury at three and a half if I'm getting 4.7 in a money market fund? Well, the answer is there isn't any right now. So something's got to give in terms of the in, in this 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 uh, uh, I can't I can't think of the word. I mean, the it's inversion. really a safety trade. Something has to be something has to be done. You know, something has to give in terms of this inversion. You know, uh, is yes. the Fed going to start r- cutting interest rates aggressively, so that so that the Fed funds rate is now below what a two-year Treasury is at or a ten-year Treasury is at? Uh, there isn't any indication whatsoever, ladies and gentlemen, that they're going to do that. So, to me, the, these yields on those instruments have to go back up again. Well, here's something else, Jeff. In order for the Fed to do something like that, start aggressively cutting rates, what's actually happening in the economy? Because yeah, they the would only be, not, yeah, the economy, the economy is not going to fall off a cliff. In a I know month. that's that, that's my point. That's my point. The the economy would have to come to an absolute screeching halt. Yeah, you'd have to have like and a fall COVID off, yeah, and fall off a cliff for the Fed to be coming in and cutting rates because they don't uh, they don't want to have to save face again because they're already trying to save face with this you know this rise they've they've, they've been raising interest rates since March of last year. Because they made a bad call on the transitory inflation. And something else that I've mentioned on past programs, there's still billions and billions and billions of dollars of COVID money in the coffers of states that they haven't deployed yet. So, you know, that's going to be another big question. And maybe that's something that's kind of a hangover for the Fed. If we're starting to see the effects of all the interest rate increases in the economy, the economy slowly starting to, you know, is, is slowing down. And the, the data is proving this. And then all of a sudden the states say, hey, we're going to start deploying all this COVID money we've been having sitting in our coffers for all these years. It, what kind of effect could that possibly have on inflation? Yeah. And so I, when you put all that together, I just I could see the Fed definitely pausing in May and still leaving on the table that they could increase in the future if inflation starts to ratchet back up or these states start spending this money causing a, an inflationary effect. But they're still doing a, a form, you know, through quantitative tightening. They are, you know, making some some end effects on interest rates by allowing these bonds to continue to roll off their balance sheet. And as far as another bank failure, I think if a bank is teetering on the edge, they'll keep it very quiet. It won't be broadcast in the financial entertainment press because the Fed already has this lending facility in place. So why broadcast it? You know, why broadcast it and create this potential contagion of sentiment again that we dealt with several weeks ago that well, it seemed over the last two weeks we've it, been recovering from? If it's a top 25 bank, it, it, won't, it won't, won't stay out of the media. If it's some small, you know, two-branch bank in, you know, backwoods, wherever, yeah, that's probably not going to get a lot of attention. Uh, it's it's the it's the top twenty five one of the top twenty five banks having an issue is what's going to get attention. I don't see any of that right now. 
No, and, and if something like either. that happened, I would start to question the examiners. There's you know, going what are all to these be new rules. Yeah, there's going to be issues in the regional banks. There's going to be issues, whether it's later this year or in the next year, because commercial lending. I have an article I'm going to have to bring it for next week's show that talks about how much those banks are exposed to commercial lending. Well, and particularly tied to offices and yes. office real estate investment trusts. The REITs. And, yeah, yeah the, the REITs and the lack of um, tenants. Because one thing we learned from COVID is that technology is a very useful tool at getting a lot of work done very efficiently, even sitting from home. If there's nobody occupying these, this office space, they're not making any money. So that's right. That, that's, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're coming up at the top of the hour break. So we're going to take the break, go into the news. And when we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us here at Davidson Capital Management, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. Now, if you missed the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise shows. And you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage. So in our second hour of this weekend's program, again, like to use the second hour to go into investor education and the topic for this second hour is really a topic that needs to be on an on a rotation each and every month because it is such a critical topic for investors all across the country to learn, understand and realize when it comes to the point of them selecting an investment professional to work with and what they need to be looking for and how they can research and find out the background and education levels and licensing levels of the investment professional that they're planning on working with. Now, a topic that we have discussed on past Money Wise programs, and I feel like we've been talking about this for years. I think from the beginning of the show. Well, I know that we've talked about this particular subject, again, the differences between a broker, a stockbroker, and a registered investment advisor, but in particular the the research and analysis that the Securities and Exchange Commission is doing when it comes down to the fiduciary standard. Uh, and later on in this hour, I'm going to go into the definition of the fiduciary standard and what 
stockbrokers, what laws and directions they have to follow working with their clients and what what laws and rules and regulations that registered investment advisors like us here at Davidson Capital Management have to follow, and in particular revolving around this fiduciary standard, because this has been a topic that has been discussed at length really post-financial crisis. Um, And the Dodd-Frank Act, which took effect in 2010, put in uh, an an actual law that goes into the ability of the Securities and Exchange Commission to create a uniform fiduciary standard, which has yet to actually take place uh, across the financial service industry. And an article that came out of the Wall Street Journal this past week uh, titled SEC uh, Head Backs Fiduciary Standards for Brokers and Advisors again goes into Mary Jo White, who's the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, really wanting tighter standards uh, for financial advisors who recommend stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to individual investors. And for any longtime listener to this program, they understand that your traditional stockbroker is on the financial sales side of the financial service industry where registered investment advisors like us at Davidson Capital Management are on the asset management side of the industry. Well, let me say something right here, Kyle. The word advisor, I think, confuses the man in the street. In the old days, when I was a broker, we were either a broker or a registered representative. Advisors, financial advisors or investment advisors, by definition, were registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What has happened is the word registered representative or broker has been dropped by Wall Street, and they have picked up various terms which they really like to use, whether it's a wealth manager or a they like financial to use advisor. Financial advisor, but they obviously don't say registered financial advisor because they wouldn't be working for a brokerage firm or registered few. investment advisor. So, so, so you the word advisor confuses the investor in the street. It, it it does, and again, I don't. I mean, I, I would hate to say that this is just strictly marketing, but it really comes down it is to marketing. marketing. It it does come down to marketing, and it's to convey the idea to a potential to a prospective client that the powers and abilities of that investment professional are above and beyond what they actually legally can do or what they normally do do with you know when it comes to working with their clients and you know last month the labor department is planning its own set of rules to tighten standards on financial professionals who advise on retirement account investments such as 401k's and of course and Bar- president yes, obama, president obama has endorsed these these we haven't had a president get involved and 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 so he came out several months back talking about wanting to have these new standards and and you know really the department of labor is going and saying well hey we're putting in these new standards securities and exchange commission why don't you put these standards in as well and mary jo white the head of the sec makes it very clear that you know we're two different regulatory agencies and that we have our own processes and procedures that we have to go through in order to put this into place but that she had, she had stated that she has been intensely studying this fiduciary standard regulations and what exactly the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to do. Now, the fact that she's been intensely studying this for just the last few months, I feel like we've been talking about this for years. So why is it just being 
intensely studied over just the last couple of months. Well, maybe before we put our listeners totally to sleep using these fiduciary words and whatnot, why not give an example of why this should be something our listeners should be listening to? Well, I'm going to have to get to that example after we come back from the commercial break because the the, the story the no, you didn't check the clock the 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 real world example I'm going to give and and it really could apply to some of our a lot of our listeners that are listening right now of what you might run into when it comes to that point in time where you're ready to hop on that horse and ride off into the retirement sunset and you start going out and interviewing investment professionals that you might be planning or or looking to work with. And as we've always advocated on this show, don't get caught behind the eight ball when it comes time to prepare and plan for your retirement as far as the investment professional that you're going to work with. You need to start the interview process six to eight months out, even 12 months out, just so you get all of your ducks in a row because the last thing we would want to see happen, and we've seen this time and time again talking and working with prospective clients coming into Davidson Capital Management, is that they waited to the last minute, they got thrown a sales pitch at them, that sounded so good to be true, too good to be true, but they signed on that dotted line and wound up getting involved in something that they wound up later regretting because they didn't do their proper due diligence uh, and doing the research it, It's re- research that's required before you hire an investment professional. So when we come back from the commercial break, I'll give you an example of going into the differences between suitability and fiduciary standard, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, um, and again, I, I know we were talking during commercial break that some of this subject matter might be seen dry and boring, but this hour is so critical for any investor to listen and to learn from to protect themselves, to protect the retirement nest egg that they have worked 30, 35, 40, 45 years to build to not get taken by potentially unscrupulous investment professionals that are looking to make a very large and quick buck and big commission and to understand the rules and regulations that folks follow in the financial service industry and how they vary so greatly between that of your traditional stockbroker versus a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management. So I wanted to give you a real-world example, and this comes from one of our clients, this real-world example. Um, Several years ago, we had met, I mean, several, I mean, we're talking six, seven years ago, met with a prospective client who was going to be retiring and had, excuse me, had already retired, had purchased an annuity, very sizable annuity, 
and the annuity was getting ready to be outside of its surrender penalty period. And they were looking to do something else with it. So they met with us, gave them you know, the, whole, the whole spiel, uh, the whole presentation as we do with any prospective client after we did a, a portfolio review and analysis for this prospective client. And I remember distinctly remembering in the meeting I, I told him, whatever you do, whether you hire us or you hire somebody else, do not buy another annuity. And he said, gotcha, got it, understand. So this prospective client goes, leaves our office, follow up with them, don't hear back from them. About 16 months later, we get a phone call, and it was this prospective client. And he said, I need to come in and talk to you. Okay, comes in. Before I even round my desk, he says, you're probably wondering why I'm here. I'm like, sure, why are you here? He said, well, I should have listened to your advice, and I didn't. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, look. And he hands me his paperwork, and what he had bought was another annuity, a variable annuity. And I asked him why. You know, give me the background as to what you did. He said, I called two stockbrokers in New York City. I called two stockbrokers in the state of Florida. I called a stockbroker in San Antonio, Texas. And all five of these stockbrokers all recommended an annuity to me. And he said, after talking to all five of these different brokers and different offices at different firms in different states, he thought to himself, well, if all five of these brokers are recommending annuity, then this is the direction that I need to go. This is what I should be buying because these five folks don't know each other from Adam, and they don't even work for the same firms, but that's what they're recommending. And, of course, when I relayed to the prospective client who then became a client that the reason why they were recommending it is because it pays the highest commission on Wall Street and explained to him round about the six-figure commission that was paid to these brokers, I just about saw his jaw hit the floor. Well, he wanted a guaranteed stream of income. That is what he wanted. It was important to him to have a monthly check. So when he went to these brokers and said, I want a guaranteed stream of income that I know it's coming in, well, the brokers basically have two choices, both of which are suitable for him. Choice number one is an annuity. Whichever insurance company that brokerage firm uses, they will select that annuity, that annuity will pay the most generous commission there is for a broker on Wall Street today, as far as we know. The other choice to provide guaranteed income is a government bond. In fact, it's the only investment, not the annuity, that can truly say, say it provides a guaranteed stream of income. The only difference being the income can vary because government bond rates will vary with maturities. For the broker, however, the commission on the same portfolio is about 98 99% less than what he would be getting personally in the annuity. That is why five different brokers from five different firms in four different states all had the same example. They were both suitable investments, and the broker only has to do what is suitable. And that is the whole point of this second hour is to 
relay real-world examples of the difference between suitability and fiduciary. And just to kind of go into that, you know, what is a fiduciary? A fiduciary is someone that manages money for the benefit of, of another called a beneficiary. A fiduciary is bound by law to place the interest of its beneficiary first before the fiduciary's own interest. Now, stockbrokers, also called registered representatives, account executives, financial advisors, wealth managers, are not fiduciaries. Even though they have engaged in high-visibility advertising to portray themselves as full-service investment advisors. It's real easy. Ask your stockbroker. If he or she holds a Series 7 securities license, if he or she does, then it's it's probable that they aren't a fiduciary. And you have to understand, a registered investment advisor like we are here at Davidson Capital Management are subject to the Investment Advisor Act of 1940, which makes us a fiduciary. Okay? And... It's so, so important. I mean, we cannot stress this enough to understand the difference. In the same example, a choice for us between an annuity and a portfolio of government bonds, as a fiduciary, we have to go with government bonds because that is what is best for the client, not what is suitable what is best as a fiduciary. And a non-fiduciary stockbroker follows only the suitability standard, which doesn't require a stockbroker to place the interest of their client ahead of their own. Under the non-fiduciary suitability standard, a stockbroker need provide only suitable advice to to their clients, even if the stockbroker knows that the advice is not in the client's best interest. A non-fiduciary stockbroker, you know, bottom line, they have a fiduciary duty to their broker-dealer, to who employs them. That is who they have a fiduciary duty to, not their client. And it, I, I can tell you, Dad, when I sit down with prospective clients and I tell them that financial salespeople, stockbrokers, are not required by law to put their interest in front of their own, it blows their mind. But what's, what's unfortunate is that individual investors don't understand that there is a difference between what registered investment advisors do, what we do here, versus what a broker does. It was the manager at Bayesian Company that I worked for as a manager that led me to become a registered investment advisor. That you worked as a broker for. Yes, I worked as a broker for them. One day I was analyzing the bond market. I was sitting at my desk looking at this chart, that chart, and he came up to me and said, John, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what the long bond's doing. And he said, we don't pay you to be an analyst. We pay you to sell securities. We're not in the business of analyzing markets, managing money. We're in the business of selling securities. The light went on in my head, and from that day forward, I chose the path of becoming a registered investment advisor. And it all went back to the manager at a brokerage firm and a young broker trying to understand and help his clients. And a registered investment advisor must follow the trust standard, and it's the highest known in law, which requires an RIA, a registered investment advisor, to place the interest of their client ahead of their own to fulfill the critical fiduciary duties of trust and confidence. 
So, again, that's that trust standard versus the suitability standard. And this is why when you go to the big name brand broker-dealers, I mean, you can list them off. There's commercials all over the place, all over television, radio, the computer for these for these firms. You know, you have to understand they're in the job of asset collection, asset harvesting to sell investment products. And it's also important when we come back from the bottom of the hour break to, to go into a lot of the proprietary relationships that are in place with your traditional broker-dealers and mutual fund families and other investment product providers to understand. And really, I think what also led a lot of investors to, to have received advice during the financial crisis of staying the course and why that advice came so much so from your traditional broker-dealer or stock brokerage-type firms. And so we'll get into that when we come back from the, from the commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing discussing that critical difference between your traditional stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the proprietary relationships that brokerage firms have. Now, prior to joining Davidson Capital Management, I spent a few years uh, as a mutual fund wholesaler where my clients as a mutual fund wholesaler were stockbrokers. I sold my company's loaded mutual funds to brokers in the state of Texas because that was part of my territory in the state of Texas. And it's important for investors to understand of these relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms. Um, And every single mutual fund family, you're going to have a mutual fund family that has some great mutual funds, some decent to average mutual funds, and some not-so-good mutual funds. Dogs. Dogs. Poor-performing mutual funds. But a lot of these brokerage offices have very limited shelf space of the mutual fund families that they want really prominently displayed in the office. And sometimes in order to get shelf space, there are marketing fees that are paid and things of that nature. Now, again, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I did the, you know, when I was a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, It's important to understand that a mutual fund wholesaler's job is to gain a relationship with a broker and to educate them about the mutual funds that are being made available by the fund family and sell them on why they need to be selling these funds to the clients. But it's also important for clients to understand that some mutual fund families have revenue-sharing agreements with brokerage firms where the brokerage firm collects a portion of the management fee being charged by the mutual fund family for those clients' assets to be in there. And really the point I'm working towards is getting back to the financial crisis. 
because when we're meeting with prospective clients after the financial crisis, we always, when we do our portfolio reviews and analysis, I always ask, well, what was the advice and guidance that you were receiving from your investment professional, from your broker during the financial crisis? And 10 out of 10 times, the advice was stay the course. And they were, the prospective client would question me, you know, why was the advice stay the course? Why wasn't it like, let's get a little more liquid, let's, let's get some money on the sidelines, let's get some cash on hand? And I really, and again, in, in, in my 17 years of experience, what my mind leads back to is revenue-sharing agreements that brokerage firms have with mutual fund families and other financial product providers that if assets are not in these mutual funds, then there's no revenue to share because there's no management fee being generated by the mutual fund family. So if advice coming from brokers to their clients was let's sell, let's get more liquid, then these brokerage firms could be slicing their own throat and the revenues that they're that, that are being driven that they're being driven off of these mutual fund holdings by their clients at these brokerage firms. So it would have seriously cut into their bottom line if it was let's get out, let's get liquid because now there's no revenue coming from these outside mutual fund families. And it's important for investors to understand. And I can tell you that when we do portfolio reviews and analysis, and particularly there's certain brokerage firms that have affinity, that have a love for very particular mutual fund families. Well, you can basically name a firm, and we will name without even look, without even looking at the portfolio, not even seeing the portfolio. We could bet the potential client you own one of these funds from a particular fund family. Just because we've been doing this, you know, in our 26th year of business, and we've reviewed quite a few portfolios in those 26 years, we see a pattern, we see a trend, and because of my inside intimate knowledge of the relationships that mutual fund families have with brokerage firms, it's no surprise. Now, listeners are probably, you know, y'all are probably hearing this on the radio thinking, well, gosh, how can brokerage firms do this? It's suitable. They're in, it's suitable. It's suitable. It's, it's suitable. It, it's They're suitable. not violating any rules. They're not violating any laws. That is the whole point of this second hour is so you understand. There's a great commercial on right now. I love this commercial because it really sums up what we're talking about. And it's these two gentlemen, and he's giving the guidance to the prospective client, and he hands him this giant grain of salt. <laughs> And he hands it to him, and he says, you know, the, we're going to be in this fund, this fund, this fund. And he says, oh, by the way, I get paid a higher commission and higher trailing fees on this because of our proprietary relationship, you know, with these with these funds. And he said, well, you know, shouldn't that be illegal? And he's kind of like, yeah, I, well, no, not, not really. I mean, he kind of has a look like, well, I guess you got a point, but no, it's not illegal. But I'm going to be making higher higher fees off this proprietary relationship that we have with these fund families. And I love that commercial. It's just started playing, so I'm sure our listeners have seen this commercial. Pay attention to it because that is what we are talking about. Well, you know, there's another commercial that the financial consultants are doing in which they hired a DJ in Dallas 
and they cleaned him up, got rid of his dreadlocks. He's really a nice-looking guy. Well, no, that's talking about financial planners, and I have a whole other bone to pick about financial planners, yes, but, which I'll get to. But within this, he looks the part. They put him in a he nice office. the part. They put him in a nice office, you know, glass, uh, everything you would want. He's got the columns. He's got the suit. He's smooth-talking. We, and, and he asked him, would you give me the account? Well, sure we would. And he said, would you like to know what my experience is? And, and I'm a my, DJ. You know, I'm a DJ. And he shows pictures of him, you know, dancing around. So, uh, you know, again, but I think that also comes back to another article, which we're not going to talk about on this weekend show, about just the number of don't, – don't let the number of accolades and awards received by a financial <laughs> professional dazzle you, think, making you think that they have a higher level of expertise or experience and experience than they actually do because again it's all marketing um but you know i will i do want to talk about uh financial planners before we go to the next break because this is something we've also talked about on the show and financial planning has has really become a a really booming industry and there are designations a certified financial planner which is a very difficult designation to get you have to go through a lot of education, a lot of test taking. It is not easy to do. Plus, you have to have industry experience to get the CFP designation. And we're not taking away from that because it's a very prestigious designation. It is. But you have to be very, very careful how this potential financial, how this financial planner is getting compensated because we have seen situations where financial planners are using this financial planning designation as another marketing tool, as a way to sell investment products, as a way to generate commissions. So you have to ask as the prospective client, how are you getting compensated? Are you fee only? Are you fee based financial planner? Or are you selling investment products where you're earning a commission and you need to ask those questions and if they're not giving you a straight answer that is when you slowly get up from the table and you walk away you as a prospective client have the right to ask a straight straight up question and get a straight up answer ask them do you have your series seven if they have a series seven pretty good chance they're compensated on commissions and that's when with the whole situation with suitability versus the fiduciary standard. If they say, well, I have my 65, which is to be a, a registered investment advisor representative, without a Series 7 or a Series 6, then they'd be leaning more on the side of fee only. And, of course, at Davidson Capital Management, we are completely fee only registered investment advisors, which puts us on the same side of the table as our clients because the more money we make for our clients, the more money we make for ourselves, and vice versa. We are not compensated based on commission, and being a registered investment advisor means that we are fiduciaries. We have to follow the trust standard required by law to put our client's interest in front of our own. But you have to understand these differences when you sit down with a financial professional to understand who you're potentially getting involved in and don't let a lot of letters after their name on the card dazzle you into thinking that they have a level of expertise and knowledge that they may or may not have. You have to vet them out yourself. You have to dig deeper. As I've said, going back to 2005 on this radio show, 
And, you know, what we've also talked about on the show is the way that you can look up your investment professional that you're thinking of working with or who you're, or who you are currently working with simply by going to Google, typing in the Google search broker check, and that will take you to the FINRA website. And FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing the really the financial sales arm of the financial service industry. You type in your broker's name and it will go to their report. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, and I've seen this, is that we've seen brokers starting to use middle names or different first names to try to get around potential bad reports. I've noticed this, that they make these name changes so you can't track them down as easily, but you still have that tool available as a prospective client to go in and do research on that investment professional to find out if they have any regulatory issues, any customer complaints, what those complaints are involved, to see if they have any personal bankruptcy or personal financial issues, or if they've had any criminal misdemeanor or felony charges in their lifetime. So utilize the tools that are available. Well, we've got to take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So before we went to commercial break, again, spending the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program talking about, again, the critical differences between a stockbroker and a registered investment advisor, and, and, and also at the beginning of the hour talking about how the SEC is still in the process of studying to find out whether they're going to hold traditional stockbrokers to the same fiduciary standard as we are held to as a registered investment advisor here at Davidson Capital Management. And I have a feeling this is going to be an ongoing saga that's never going to reach a conclusion um, because, again, I think that this would put a serious uh, dampening on revenues at traditional broker-dealer firms across this country. So I'm definitely not holding my breath. The fact that this that this provision or, or the discussion of adding this provision has been around since the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, and we're now in 2015, and the head of the SEC, Mary Jo White, has only been intensely studying it for the last few months, I'm not holding my breath no, that anything is going to get done. Going to so what you have to do as an investor, you have to arm yourself with knowledge. That's one reason why we have the Money Wise program and why we're in our 10th year of doing it. But you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to be an educated consumer. And before you sign on that line as dotted, you have to utilize all the, the research capabilities that are available on the Internet. And as we went to the last commercial break, talking about utilizing the FINRA website, which is the regulatory body of broker-dealers, of stockbrokers, 
and doing what's called a broker check. By Googling, broker check takes you right to the website. You type in your broker's name, and you pull up their permanent record. I always jokingly <laughs> say, you know, in From high the school. Principal. Yeah, the principal. Yeah, in high school, you've got your permanent record. Well, in the financial service industry, whether you're a registered investment advisor like we are, or if you're a or if you're a stockbroker, we all have a permanent record called our U4. And it tracks you throughout your entire career. So if you've had run-ins with client complaints, customer complaints, and what those complaints are, to see that if you've actually gotten sued by a former client and actually had to pay restitution, or if the brokerage firm or firm you worked for had to pay restitution. It talks about if you've had any kind of bankruptcies or personal financial uh, issues that is also reported in the U4 on broker check, or if you've had any misdemeanor or felony charges. And, I mean, I know for a fact, just from doing my own research, that we have an insurance salesman here in town that avoided a potential 10 years in prison on a drug felony charge <laughs> because of illegal search and seizure. I found this on broker check. I found this on broker check. I, I found a, a gentleman here in town, we, a prospective client, was getting ready to hand over over a million dollars of his hard work, his life savings, and this financial professional had filed bankruptcy three separate times. Now, I understand people run into financial difficulties. You know, I'm not making light of that. But if you've run into a situation where you've had to file bankruptcy multiple times and you can't keep your own financial house in order... I, as a prospective client, I would be a little nervous turning over my life savings to someone who's a financial professional who can't keep their own financial house in order. There's just no reason for people to do this when this is available to them. That's right. And, and, and again, you're going to go and, and look up financial professionals that have a very clean record, but it's also going to show you what licensing they have, going back to this, that if they have a Series 7, that their compensation can come in the form of commissions. So again, knowing that they're on the financial sales side of the business, um, you know, for us at Davidson Capital Management, having our Series 65 as a registered representative of a registered investment advisory firm, we follow the fiduciary standard that we have to follow as an RIA. I haven't seen numbers. I know once upon a time, I think we quoted there's 15,000 of us and there's over 300,000 of them. Closer to 400,000. Well, I mean, Registered investment advisors is a very small minority in the financial service industry. So you're more often than not going to run into a traditional stockbroker than you are a registered investment advisor. Now, I, I want to just kind of give this blanket disclosure. You know, we're not using this hour to beat up on brokers. There are a lot of good, hardworking brokers. In fact, one of my friends is a broker that, that are, do right by their client, that do a good job. But you have to understand as an investor what type of an investor you are. If you're the type of an investor that likes to call the shots of what's bought and what's sold in your portfolio, and when that occurs, you're best suited to work with a stockbroker. That's really what they're there for. They, You can ask them questions. They can give you some advice and guidance. You can bounce investment ideas off of them. They can give you their personal opinion, and they can process the trades for you. If you're the type of investor that doesn't 
want to have that control, that wants to turn over the decision-making on a day-to-day basis to the investment professional, then you're best suited to work with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management. And you have to understand the brokerage industry over the last 15-plus years, because of the pressure they've been feeling from registered investment advisory firms like us, have developed programs to give you that active asset management from either themselves at the brokerage firm or an outside money management firm that they partner with. But you have to understand that your broker is not the person that is making those day-to-day decisions. Your broker is nothing more than the middleman of that transaction. They're getting paid a fee to steer your money to an outside asset manager or to the home office to an asset management group that you will have no relationship with, they won't know you from Adam, and you're paying an extra layer of fees on top to have your broker being nothing more than a mouthpiece in this transaction, where instead of working directly with a registered investment advisor like a Davidson Capital Management, you eliminate that extra layer of fees. You go directly to the source and you have that personal relationship with that investment professional who's making those day-to-day decisions with your assets, you can look at them in the white of their eyes when you're working directly with a registered investment advisor. So you have to utilize the tools that are available to you. You have to understand those critical differences between a broker and a registered investment advisor and the differences between what is suitable, what brokers follow, and what registered investment advisors follow as a fiduciary and following that fiduciary standard. And if any of our listeners want more education, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and give us a call at Davidson Capital Management at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.